This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 14. During that period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, through, that, though, the fire, though that the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivizites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the, bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent to me, sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord our God, it was you and you alone who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have led us through the wilderness, guided and guarded by your holy presence. And now gathered as your people around your awesome presence, may we hear your living voice through the words of Holy Scripture and through the power of the gospel. May we be set free from every chain that still binds us to offer ourselves up to you in the joy of holy service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, brothers and sisters. And I want to say, as we're going through this series, this new series on Christ and the Old Testament, that we are by no means abandoning the preaching of the gospel, 
because the message of salvation and redemption and deliverance through Jesus comes through so powerfully in these Old Testament books. And perhaps none so powerfully, none so strong as this book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And it is amazing that even after 3,500 years, this book has not lost its resonance among those in the world who are hungering and thirsting for the salvation of God. For the poor and the weak and the oppressed and those who have been ground down, who long for justice in this world. The book of Exodus tells us that God hears the groans of those who suffer. That the God that we worship is not the God who is on the side of the proud and the powerful and the violent. This is a God who takes the side of the weak and of the distressed and of the oppressed. And he hears, and not only hears, he rides to act on behalf of those who cry out to him. And if we have heard the message of this book, if the story of Exodus has vibrated in our own souls, we cannot but feel a deep sympathy to those everywhere in this world who are crying out for freedom and deliverance. Even as we speak today, even as we worship today, there are brave women in Iran who are leading these protests against a repressive and suffocating government, and we pray in sympathy with them. Even as we speak and even as we worship today, we have our friends in Ukraine who are struggling against an enemy who has come to steal and kill and destroy, to torture and mutilate and murder. And we pray and plead in sympathy with them. Because in Exodus, we have a very strange book, absolutely unique in ancient literature, the tale of a nation of mongrel slaves who somehow escaped out of the clutches of the most powerful empire in the world to a new land of safety and freedom and justice, the Exodus. The word Exodus is a Greek word that simply means the way out, the exit. In fact, I was surprised when I went to Cyprus for the first time and, and drove down the highway. You'll see the next exit, 300 meters. The exodus, 300 meters. If you go to the airport in Athens, it will say gates A1 to A30, but in Greek it'll say exodus A1 to A30. The exit. This is a book that is all about the exit, about a people who are trapped and suffocating and pushed up against what seems like a solid wall, and suddenly an outside door opens and they rush out into the fresh air. From first to last, Exodus is the story about the mighty acts of God who delivers his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And unlike all the gods of the nations, this God sees the misery of the oppressed and he hears their groans. He rides to the rescue. He sweeps away the most powerful army on earth and he clears a path for the 12 tribes who can only watch in awe as God moves on their behalf to handle an enemy that is far too powerful for them to overcome. This story doesn't appear out of nowhere. There is a history, a long history. God shows up in Exodus because he has long ago bound himself to this particular people by a whole series of promises that he made to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And now after centuries of waiting, 
God at last is showing up to keep his promises. And therefore, this book of Exodus is very closely linked to Genesis. In fact, the very first word of the second book of the Bible is and. Now, I was taught in elementary school by my language teacher, you're not allowed to start a sentence with the word and. But here is a whole book of the Bible that begins with and, coupling it to what God has already done and promised and sworn in the book of Genesis. Now, even in two sermons on Genesis, we just leapt over whole swaths of material. But the later chapters of that book tell about how Israel ended up in the land of Egypt in the first place. God had promised them the land of Canaan, but there was a famine. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's descendants had moved down, the whole clan, down to Egypt to escape famine. The very last verse of Genesis states that Jacob had died, he'd been mummified, and placed in a sarcophagus. A very Egyptian death and burial for an Israelite. But before he died, almost with his last breath, he made his son swear, one day you will bring my bones back to Canaan, to the promised land. Because Jacob knew that even though he was dying in Egypt, God's promises still awaited fulfillment. That there had to be more to this story. And therefore, after the book of Genesis, we have a new and, as the story continues 400 years later in the book of Exodus. By this time, this largish clan of Israel has swollen to a nation of almost 2 million people. And now a new Pharaoh has come to the throne, and the contributions of Joseph have long been forgotten. They feel like they owe no debt of gratitude to the people of Israel. And the kings of Egypt see this growing racial minority as both a fearful security threat, but also an economic opportunity. And both the threat and the possibility can be dealt with by turning all these foreign migrants into slaves. Because the glory of this empire, like every human empire, can only be built on a huge sweating pool of manual labor. And the Egyptian taskmasters use the lash and the chain to extract every bit of useful energy from these foreign Hebrews to keep them too cowed and exhausted even to think of an uprising. But somehow, their ranks keep on filling and the nation grows and expands, so Pharaoh decides to launch an extermination campaign. All the infant boys, all the newborn boys are going to be seized from their mothers and drowned in the Nile. And it's not hard to see behind this attempted genocide, the malice of the serpent, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. But the mother of one Israelite baby puts her newborn boy into a little reed ark, a little boat, and she lets the current of the Nile take him, and the covered basket bumps into an Egyptian princess who is bathing in the river. And she takes the baby out of the basket, she adopts him as her own, and she gives him the name Moses, which means... I drew him out of the water. And this boy Moses is raised in Pharaoh's court. He has all the advantages of culture and education. But then there's a fateful day where Moses sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up a Hebrew. And in that moment, he makes the choice to identify not with the power and privilege and prestige of his adopted family, but with the persecuted, crushed, oppressed people of God And impetuously, he kills the overseer and he buries him in the sand. It's a hasty action. 
And he realizes quickly that it's going to become known to Pharaoh and he has to run away. He flees Egypt. He has his own personal exodus and escapes to the land of Midian. Which brings us to the passage that Anne read for us from Exodus chapter 2 and 3, which begins with the people of Israel groaning because of their slavery and crying out for help. We're not told who they're groaning to. We're not told who they're crying out towards. They just want help from anyone and anyone who can possibly come to their aid. And God hears their groaning because God is never deaf to those who suffer. And God remembers. He remembers his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Not because it had ever failed to escape God's mind. But now he is about to act in faithfulness to his past commitments. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Four verbs at the end of chapter two. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And when God hears and God remembers and God sees and God knows, the very next thing God is going to do is to act. And the God who hears and remembers and sees and knows is about to ride to Israel's rescue. Well, this man Moses had seemingly wasted his life because by this time he's 80 years old. He spent the last 40 years Four decades wandering around the wilderness caring for sheep. An occupation, by the way, that the Egyptians found particularly repellent. Moses is a shepherd, like so many of the people that God is going to call as leaders in the Old Testament. And shepherding is an occupation Moses is going to have for the next 40 years as well. He's just being graduated from four-legged sheep to two-legged ones, guiding them through the wilderness. But as far as Moses knows, this day is a day just like the 14,000 odd ones that he spent working with sheep over the last 40 years. And today he's far from the land of Midian, searching for grass on the mountain slopes on the west side of the wilderness. And Moses and his sheep arrive at the mountain of Horeb, which Exodus describes as the mountain of God, but that's only in the future. Right now is just any old desolate mountain on the edge of the wilderness. Nothing special, nothing unusual. Nothing particularly holy about it until Moses looks over and sees a very weird sight. There is a bush on fire. And when he takes a second look and stares at it, he realizes there's something even stranger about this bush because it's burning and burning and burning, but this little bush is not being consumed. And like any curious human being would do, Moses turns aside from his sheep to get closer to this bush to inspect it, to see what strange thing is happening. And as he approaches, God speaks to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, this is not just a bizarre paranormal experience that Moses has stumbled upon. God has been waiting for Moses to show up to an appointment he did not even realize that he had. Don't come near Don't take a step closer to this bush, God says, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, holiness is not a concept that really comes up at all in the book of Genesis, but now it's going to be a dominant idea going forward as more about the character of God is going to be revealed because the same fire that attracts Moses is also extremely dangerous. And for his own safety, Moses must come no further. And Moses is the first Israelite to experience what the whole nation, what all 12 12 tribes are going to experience on this very mountain. 
the fearsome, terrifying, thundering, and consuming presence of God, which is glorious and beautiful and attractive, but also incredibly dangerous. And therefore, limits and boundaries must be set for Israel's own protection. And those whom God invites to approach must only do so following the regulations that God has set. God speaks further to Moses. Moses, I am the God of your father, not your adopted father, your birth father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Of all the awesome ways this transcendent consuming God could have introduced himself, he announces himself as the faithful God of these three nomads who had trusted in him. And when Moses hears this, he hides his face because he's afraid to look on God. What began as curiosity has now turned into fear because without even being told, Moses knows that no one can look on the face of God and live. And as Moses stands there in his bare feet at a respectful distance with his face hidden from the glory of God, God informs Moses that he has heard the affliction of his people. He has heard their cries. He knows their suffering. And now God says, I have come down to deliver them. God himself has shown up to rescue his people, to take vengeance on their oppressors, to destroy every chain that holds them back, and to bring them into a land of freedom and promise. Why does God do this? Why does God rouse himself to action? Because as the book of Deuteronomy will tell us, God's people are the pupil of his eye, which means that assaulting and harming and hurting the people of God is the very same thing as taking a sharp stick and trying to jab it into God's own eye. And there's no way that God will not respond to that. And God is going to unleash one plague after another on Pharaoh. There are going to be these acts of uncreation where the whole world turns on Pharaoh in Egypt. And when this arrogant ruler still refuses to relinquish God's beloved people, God is going to turn a dead end into an exit door for Israel and lead his people through the Red Sea on dry ground and then bring the waters crashing down, drowning Pharaoh and his horses and his chariots in the very waters of salvation. God tells Moses, I'm going to rescue my people Israel from their slavery and I'm going to bring them up into a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of fertility, a land that's pleasant and safe and bountiful, the land of Canaan, the very land that I promised to your forefathers. That's all very exciting, very thrilling news that Moses hears. Then to his shock, God tells him, and now I am going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is being summoned to be the human agent of God's mighty deliverance. Now, let's be clear. This is not a job that Moses has volunteered for. This whole project of the Exodus was not an idea that Moses came up with a brainstorming session, that he's trying to enlist God as a helper to, to, to help them do this. This is God's idea. God summons And God doesn't even ask if this opportunity aligns with Moses' personal 40-year vision 
of his golden years. God calls him, God summons him, and in the case of God's mighty call, we can only respond in obedience. But Moses very naturally asks, but God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 40 years ago, Moses had acted very impulsively and very rashly, and he was unable to rescue even a single Hebrew out of Egypt. He'd failed spectacularly. Now, how is this single man, a man smelling very strongly like sheep, how is this person supposed to go into the palace of the greatest emperor of earth and demand that he release two million slaves? God's answer is not, oh, Moses, this is actually going to be a far easier job than you realize. Don't be so intimidated. He doesn't say, oh, Moses, don't be so down on yourself. Believe in yourself. You have incredible talents. You've had incredible opportunities in the past. You were an incredible leader, Moses. God's answer is this, Moses, I will be with you. The only thing any of us needs to hear when God calls us as his human agents in this world, I will be with you. God is not only going to authenticate Moses' calling with mighty signs and wonders and plagues, God himself is going to go with Moses. God himself is going to journey along with the people of Israel. God himself is going to be with them in the form of a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke as they escape from Egypt and make their way to the land of promise. And here's the sign that God gives to hesitant Moses. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, God says, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is calling Moses in a giant circle. And he's going to come all the way back to this lonely mountain, not by himself this time, but at the head of this huge host of Israelites. And the God of the burning bush will appear once more to the 12 tribes. And he's going to speak from the mountain and commission all of them as a holy people, a royal priesthood, a nation set aside for the worship and service of God. That statement is highly significant because the book of Exodus is not just a book about the Red Sea and escape from Egypt. It's about Sinai. It's about calling. It's about holiness. This is not just a book about freedom from. It is profoundly a book about freedom for. This is not just about liberty from death and oppression and slavery. This is God's awesome summons into life and purpose with God as his people in his promised land with his presence, whose service, as the Book of Common Prayer so beautifully puts it, whose service is perfect freedom. Exodus leads to Sinai, not the other way around. Exodus first then Sinai. Deliverance first, then the law. Salvation first, then the call to holiness. And in her book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, the Old Testament scholar Carmen Joy Eim says that many Christians assume that in the Old Testament era, the Israelites had to earn salvation by works, by following the law of Sinai. Well, now in the New Testament, Jesus did away from that notion, making salvation available for free. But she points out that if that were true, God would have done things much differently. He would have sent Moses down to Egypt and said, 
Here is the law. Here are the Ten Commandments. Once you slaves have shown me, have proven that you can keep these perfectly, then I will show up. And as a reward for your obedience, I will rescue you from the land of Egypt. That is not how things happen at all. God does not respond to the Israelites' holiness and righteousness. He responds out of grace purely to their misery. And in his grace, God reaches down. He takes them out of slavery and he calls them to something new and glorious. And therefore, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, what was written on the stone tablets does not begin with the first commandment. It begins with these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And even in the Old Testament, the summons to obey God and follow his liberating law was a response to grace, not the condition for it. Exodus is the story of the gospel. But Moses has another question for God, an even more important question than who am I? He says, God, when I go down to Egypt and I show up and tell the people of Israel that the God, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me, and they ask me, well, who is this God? What is his name? What am I going to say? It's a very wise question that Moses asks, because in this moment of crisis, what the people of Israel need is not Moses's half-baked speculations on the divine. They need God's own declaration of who God is. We don't name God. God names God. If we would attempt to name God, we'd only end up creating a deity in our own image. Only God can name God. And the only way that we can possibly know our creator is if he chooses to reveal himself to us. If he speaks and says, this is who I am. And so God speaks out of the bush and he says to Moses, I am who I am. A very strange, mysterious, inscrutable thing for the God of the unburnt bush to say. And it's one of our most important passages in the Bible to understand God. So what can we learn from God's self-disclosure? I am who I am. What on earth does this strange sentence mean? First of all, I am who I am means that God can only be defined by himself. Not only can only God define God, but God can only be defined in terms of himself, not by comparison or analogy to any created thing. And of course, to accommodate our creatureliness, the smallness of our human minds, God says, I am like a father. I am like a lion. I am like a king. I am like these different things. But God is so much more. God is not just another being in the universe. God is being itself, and God can only be defined by God. Secondly, I am who I am tells us that God is eternal and unchanging. We're not quite clear how to translate these words because of the Hebrew tenses, but we could also translate it something like, I am who I was, who I will be. God is eternally self-consistent. He is not a God in process. He's not a God in change. He's not undergoing a journey of personal growth and transformation like every single person in the room is. God simply is. And therefore, God can be trusted. But perhaps most importantly in this passage, I am who I am tells us that God is self 
existent. No creature is self-existent. All of us depend for our existence on something else, on God himself. All of our being is derivative. Every breath we take is given to us by our creator. And every single thing in this universe is upheld by the word of his power. But God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. The technical word that theologians use for this is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. And we're plunging into deep waters here. But this means that God in no way needs, depends on, or benefits from his creation. And I think this is what the symbol of the burning bush, the burning but unburnt bush, is meant to teach us. Here is a fire that is continuously burning out of its own energy. It's not consuming the bush as a source of external fuel. This fire is a self-existing fire, which is very good news for the bush, by the way. And in the same way, the presence of God among us is a self-existing fire. He is present, but we are not consumed. Our worship and our service and our offerings in no way fuel the life of God in the way the pagan nations understood their own worship of idols. It's what the theologian Catherine Tanner describes as God's non-competitive relationship with his creation. God's non-competitive relationship with his creation. God's life does not depend or demand anything from us for his existence. And therefore, we should not think of God as simply a much bigger Pharaoh who's going to feed on the Israelite nation in order to keep himself alive. The God we worship is a God of abundant fullness, not a God of lack, not a big black hole who's sucking our life in order to fuel himself. And therefore, because the God of Israel is a God of abundant fullness, he is a God who is always pouring forth, not a drain who is sucking life into himself. And because God does not need anything, because he does not depend on our service or require our giving, the giving goes in only one direction, from God down to his creation. God is profoundly a God of grace. And therefore, what he's calling Israel to is not a new kind of slavery, but the blessing of freedom in his presence. The story of Exodus was the story above all others that dominated the imagination of Israel down through the centuries. But even within the book of Exodus, we find that the deliverance, the salvation, the redemption from Israel was only partial. Because though Israel was taken out of Egypt, Egypt still needed to be taken out of Israel. And even while Moses is spending his 40 days on top of the mountain in the darkness and the thick cloud, speaking to God, receiving the Ten Commandments inscribed by God's own finger on, on tablets of stone, down below, the Israelites are worshiping the golden calf, whom they now believe has brought them out of the land of Egypt. Like every story in the Old Testament, the story of Exodus is a picture, but only a faint, incomplete sketch of salvation that leaves us crying out for complete redemption. Exodus is the story of the gospel that points to the full and complete gospel. When God really does come down to rescue his people, 
not merely as a figure of speech, but in the person of the promised Messiah, in Jesus, whose very name means the Lord to the rescue. God has shown up to free his people. The book of Jude very boldly says that it was Jesus who saved Israel out of the land of Egypt. And now Jesus has come for a new and fuller and complete exodus. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. He has come to free all those who are trapped in a lifelong fear of death. Jesus has come once for all to smash the chains of sin that have bound us and kept us in slavery. And Jesus' ministry on earth is a ministry of signs and wonders, demonstrating again and again that he is the Lord of creation. But the climax of Jesus' ministry, the way that God chooses to reveal his power is through profound weakness. And the outstretched arm by which the Lord delivers his people is nailed to the cross. It appears to be the final triumph of evil and darkness. But much like the people of Israel, seemingly trapped against the Red Sea, as the evil king bears down on them with his chariots and horses to destroy them for the last time, a door out of the darkness opens up. And resurrection happens. And the very waters of doom are the waters of salvation. The very moment of the triumph of Satan and sin and death becomes their drowning in the waters of God's freedom. And we sing on the banks of that Red Sea, Christ has risen from the dead. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered death by death. And now Jesus has given us his own spirit to go with us through the wilderness, the pillar of fire that is accompanying his people, bringing us to the mountain of God, where we are set free for a life of holy service. We're not bringing Egypt along with us in our hearts because our liberation is not merely an external one, much as that is needed, but it is a freedom of the heart. And what Jesus has come to do is to bring all of us into the full liberty of the sons and daughters of God, where every human being who trusts in him can be set free from every chain that binds us and every enemy that oppresses us, every evil that would destroy us. Until the whole creation, which even now is groaning in bondage, will be set free to join in the song of the redeemed. The song the book of Revelation describes as the song of Moses and the Lamb. Where we will stand in the heavenly city, not with a traveling tabernacle made of skins, but the being ourselves the permanent temple of God, the people of his presence, where the gates of the city always stand open with no threat of evil or harm or destruction or death. Brothers and sisters, the Exodus story is our story. We are the new Israel of God. And we're called to appropriate that story in our own lives. We are the weak, the humble, 
the oppressed, those who can do nothing to free themselves, but can only cry out to God, God, rescue, God, save, God, act in power to free your people. And our hope is not in ourselves, in our power, in our righteousness, and our cunning and ability to overcome evil. Our hope is only in the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord who has not only made incredible promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, but the God who keeps his promises, who smashes every false God, the God who breaks every chain and will bring us at last into the full liberty and joy and freedom and service that he has promised. So shall we pray and cry out afresh to God, not in desperation, but in faith and in thanksgiving. Glorious God of the Exodus, mighty Redeemer, God of the burning bush, God of the Red Sea, God of Sinai, God of Israel, God of the tabernacle, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for all the promises you have made, which you have kept in the person of your son. Lord, may we not be like the generation in the wilderness. May we be those who respond in joy and thanksgiving, in trust and in confidence. And Lord, may we do what you call us to do, to offer ourselves up in holy service, to recognize that we have been purchased from slavery. We have been redeemed at incredible cost with the precious blood of your son. You have called us not to a new slavery, but to the dignity of royal priesthood to be ourselves agents of your freedom, to announce your liberation, to proclaim your gospel in this earth. And therefore, Lord, we cry out to you on behalf of all in this world who are suffering, all who are oppressed, all who are being tortured, all who are being exploited, all who need you to come to their rescue. Lord, there is so much groaning, there is so much grief, there is so much suffering in your creation. Come, Lord Jesus, and make all things well, we pray. Defeat evil once and for all. Crush the head of the serpent and set free all who cry out to you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf Georgia. Dot org. Thanks for listening.